Hello, my name is Bill Coughlin, and welcome to First Person Civil War Podcast, which retells the stories of the soldiers and officers on the ground in the battles of the Civil War. In this episode, we follow Corporal Daniel Crotty and the 3rd Michigan at the Battle of Chancellorsville in early May 1863. Corporal Crotty wrote the source used for today's episode, entitled Four Years Campaigning in the Army of the Potomac. Daniel G. Crotty was born in Ireland around 1840 and immigrated to the United States when he was seven years old. At the start of the Civil War, Crotty was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he enlisted as a private in Company F of the 3rd Michigan. By the time of the Peninsula Campaign, Private Crotty was a part of the Regimental Color Guard and carried the colors of the regiment into battles during the Peninsula Campaign and Second Bull Run. By late April and early May of 1863, the 3rd Michigan was a part of the 3rd Brigade, commanded by Colonel Heyman, 1st Division, commanded by General Burney, and General Sickles's 3rd Corps. General Hooker, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, following the defeat at the Battle of Fredericksburg, ordered the army to march west of that city and cross the Rapidan and Rappahannock Rivers in late April 1863, after which time Hooker would fight the Army of Northern Virginia on ground of his choosing. Daniel Crotty was now a corporal, and the 3rd Michigan crossed with the 3rd Corps on 28 April 1863, and on the morning of 2 May attacked General Anderson's division in a southerly direction along a road passing through a densely wooded area called the Wilderness, and in vicinity of the Chancellor House, according to Corporal Crotty. The Red Diamond Division has a position on the Richmond Road, commanded by our gallant Bernie. Ha! We see over the valley beyond long wagon trains moving south. Now they are on the move and flying sure. Our division is ordered forward and get into the cedar woods where we strike some rebels who fire into us. We go for them with the bayonet. They fall back and we advance, fighting all the way for about three miles. They pull up behind some works and we halt in front. The rebel train keeps moving on and we lie still for some cause or other. Our regiment is ordered to lie down, and we are in such a position that the rebels have a good chance to fire on us. Just as a quick side note concerning the Red Diamond Division, as Corporal Crotty stated, this was in reference to the new Corps badge designations within the Union Army. Every Corps had a unique badge with the three divisions of each Corps assigned a color. Every first division in the army had a red badge color, second division white, and third division blue. The third corps badge was a diamond. Therefore, the first division was the red diamond division. At this point, the third Michigan was at Catherine's Foundry, or Furnace, and facing south with the rest of their division. 
Though they saw initial success that day, the fight was far from over. While lying still, we hear, all at once, a tremendous firing in our rear. It sounds in the direction of the position we left in the morning. Can it be possible the enemy is in our rear? Such is the fact. For we soon find out that the rebel General Jackson has got round behind us and is fighting the 11th Corps under Howard, who was in the position we left. Now we are in a pretty condition, rebels in our front and rebels in our rear. We must get out of this or else be gobbled up. So getting back, we change our front of the morning to the rear at night. The 11th Corps are driven from their position. Night puts an end to all fighting, and we take a position in an open field and try to rest our fatigue. The flank attack of the Confederate Second Corps was a complete success, and the Third Corps had to retreat under pressure from Anderson's division in front. The Third Corps was now in the same vicinity they started that morning, still facing south, with the Third Michigan around the hinge where the Third Corps met the Twelfth Corps facing west. That night did not stop the fighting for the Third Michigan as the Third Corps conducted a night assault upon Confederate positions. At about 12 o'clock, and according to the brigade commander, it was 10 p.m., we got the order to fall in, and it is made known to us that a midnight charge is on foot to dislodge the enemy and take back their ground. The awful grandeur of the scene defies description. Our first line, having their guns primed, it is the intention when they come to the enemy to fire, and the other lines to charge with the cold steel. The order is quietly given to forward, and the whole mass move into the woods, which are thick and dark as Hades. No one knows where to strike the rebel lines. Some commence to fire, others follow suit, and all blaze away, not knowing what act and seemed to be one vast square of fire. All begin to yell and cheer. Some go forward, some go to the right, and some to the left. The rebels open with their artillery, and ours reply from the fields. By this point, the Third Corps night assault soon began to unravel. All is utter confusion, and no one knows where we are going. I find myself with others, charging on some works. We get over them, thinking they belong to the enemy, but we soon find out that we have been charging our own works, occupied by the 12th Corps, who thought the rebels wanted their works, and they left them in peace for their old friends. Whoever took part in the fizzle in the woods on the night of the 2nd of May will remember it as long as they live. After a while, we make our way to the field where we started from. This night assault was a failure along the whole front, and it seems the term fizzle was shared in a way by the brigade commander of the 3rd Michigan, Colonel Samuel B. Heyman. The rifle pits were carried in the face of a terrible fire from both friend and foe. 
At least such is the opinion entertained by the officers and enlisted men of my command. Corporal Daniel Crotty personally attributes this failed assault as a contributing factor in the mortal wounding of General Jackson that night, which was not even one mile north. They gathered the following information from Confederate prisoners. It was in this melee in the woods that the notorious Stonewall Jackson received his death wound. The rebels themselves claim they gave it to him, but we don't care how he got it, so long as he is out of the way, for he was the terror of our army. And he continues, When he, Jackson, heard the firing in the woods, he rode out on one part of his own lines and was going by another post. The rebels were so excited by the firing in the woods that they thought it was Yankees on the charge. They fired a volley and killed one of the best generals in their army. So our fizzle was the cause of doing some good after all. There were indeed a series of events at the place where Jackson was shot that directly attributed to the mortal wounding of General Jackson. At several instances before Jackson went on his recon, Union and Confederate forces clashed at that place. But this night assault that 3rd Michigan participated in was not related. In fact, as the 3rd Michigan set out, Jackson was already wounded at approximately 9.30 p.m. 3 May proved yet another day of setbacks for the 3rd Michigan and the Army of the Potomac. At 4 o'clock on the quiet Sabbath morning of the 3rd of May, we look towards the woods and see our skirmishers emerge therefrom, followed close by solid masses of rebel infantry. In an instant, we are in line. Our artillery open out on them, but they don't seem to care for anything as they set up a hellish yelling. And this was the famous rebel yell. As they set up a hellish yelling and come for us. We open our small arms on them and cause some to fall to Mother Earth to rise no more. They close the gaps and still they come on. We get the order to fall back, which is done in good order, loading and firing as we go. The 3rd Michigan and the rest of the 3rd Corps proceed to form around the Chancellorsville House, but even here were pushed out of their positions. Falling behind a line in front of the Chancellorsville House, we get the order to lie down, which is done gladly for a few minutes' rest. The rebels pour their shot and shell into our midst, and many a poor fellow rolls over without a groan. Our front gives way again, and we are on our feet once more, ready to receive the charge of the victorious enemy. The enemy charge on us in eight or ten lines deep. Our artillery opens out on them, and then musketry, mowing down fearful gaps in their ranks. But on they come, and back we have to get again. It was only a defensive line further north of the Chancellorsville House did the Army of the Potomac stand firm against further Confederate attacks. 
which was at 12 p.m., according to Corporal Crotty. The 3rd Michigan stayed in this position until 6 May 1863, when the Army recrossed the Rappahannock River, which marked the end of the Battle of Chancellorsville. This was the second major defeat in a row for the Army of the Potomac, and was the only battle General Hooker was in command of that army. Corporal Daniel Crotty remained a color bearer through the end of the war. He went on to the Battle of Gettysburg in early July, and in the wake of the New York draft riots, the 3rd and 5th Michigan regiments, the 5th was another regiment in the same brigade, traveled to that city to help enforce the draft. These regiments arrived in August well after the conclusion of the riots and helped enforce the August draft without incident. The 3rd Michigan continued its service in the Army of the Potomac through the Overland Campaign and due to heavy casualties, consolidated with the 5th Michigan for the rest of the war. Corporal Crotty received a wound at Petersburg, but remained in the Army through Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, and ended the war a color sergeant. I must say that I am impressed that Color Sergeant Daniel Crotty managed to survive so many years and bloody battles as a regimental color bearer. Union regiments carried into battle the United States flag and their regimental flag, and served as the place for the men of the regiment to rally around during a battle. Given that he carried a large flag into the massive battles of the Eastern Theater, it's nigh on a miracle he survived to the end of the war. Daniel G. Crotty returned to Michigan after the war and became active within the newly formed Grand Army of the Republic, which was a veterans organization much like today's Veterans of Foreign Wars. He became the commander of the Fairbanks Post No. 17, located in Detroit, where he also raised a family and died in 1921. Daniel G. Crotty wrote the source used for this episode in 1874, entitled, Four Years Campaigning in the Army of the Potomac. Thank you for listening to the sixth episode. The link to Color Sergeant Crotty's book is now on the source page. Below the Union and Confederate sources, I've also included links to two more books. It was common for both Union and Confederate organizations to give themselves their own names, which were compiled in two books. The first one is List of Synonyms of Organizations in the Volunteer Service of the United States, and the second, Local Designations of Confederate Troops. The links to all three of these books are located at the podcast website. First person Civil War Podcast.com. In the social media posts on Facebook, Instagram, and X this week, you can see a picture of the remains of the Catherine Furnace, which was the third Michigan's furthest advance. And the second picture is a sketch by Alfred R. Vald, who was present at Chancellorsville. He depicted the third and fifth corps in line of battle on 3 May in their final positions. The podcast received a generous donation this past week. 
Your contribution is greatly appreciated. Sergeant J.J. McDaniel of Company M, 7th South Carolina, provides next week's first-person account at the Battle of Antietam. My name is Bill Coughlin, and thank you for listening to First Person Civil War Podcast.